cliffcentral.com do you have a domestic worker or gardener? Do you pay them a minimum wage? How about a living wage? Do you know the difference? I certainly didn't, but our guest today introduced us to the practice. We have Nigel Branken with us today. And while in some cases race shouldn't matter, it certainly does with him and his family. Nigel moved his wife and six children to the inner city suburb of Hilborough in Joburg, post-democracy. He did this as a stand in solidarity to those facing extreme poverty because the fact is we cannot change what we do not see. They live by the principle that they must become friends to their neighbors and then become good neighbors to their friends. When Nigel first explored the idea of paying a living wage, he ended up realizing that he wasn't paying nearly enough for his domestic worker, Lois. Is that how we say it? Yeah. Lois. <laughs> and her family to live in good health, safety, and with future promise, which is unfortunately the lot for more than half of our country's population today. Looks like there's no such thing as previously disadvantaged yet. Let's get into it with Nigel and he'll explain it further. Hi, Nigel. Hi, everybody. So great to be here. <laughs> very, very good to have you. Hi, Mbali. Hi. <laughs> I finally said hi to you. I me. know. I thought you were going to do what you usually do. I, I feel like a piece of furniture sometimes. Yeah, I panic and then I don't greet you. <laughs> <laughs> hi, hi. Uh, Nigel, it's so awesome to have you. Literally, like, we've been looking forward to it for a good minute now. Yours is such an exemplary and an instructor story. Mm. So, thank you. And I mean, I'd like to actually point out, we, we, it's taken us this long to get his story because he's been working with, um, a guy named Napoleon or Napoleon's been arrested on false charges of murder. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's, he's very, very active in general in terms of, you know, Active Should we maybe expand on in who terms of acts of injustice Napoleon that happen? <laughs> I don't know if you'd like to. Yeah, Napoleon is a good friend of mine. I've known him for sure. I say good friend, but we've known each other just two, three years now. So it's quite, quite a new um, sort of getting to know him. But uh, he's an activist in Marikana, and he's really been standing up for for that community. He moved into that community also to live in solidarity with people there. Um, I think he. Um, yeah, a lot of the issues in Marikana, I suppose, are very relevant to this mm, show as well. Yeah. So mine workers not getting paid a living wage. That right. was really what, what the massacre in 2012 was about. And, um, still to date, we don't have those people who, who were involved in the massacre haven't been brought to account. Yeah. Um, although there have been, there's been the commission of inquiry and of course the NPA has been involved. Um, so Napoleon's been arrested um, together with a whole lot of other activists on sort of trumped-up charges of murder. Um, we've had evidence that he wasn't there. Um, he was with journalists. He was. Um, there's video footage. There's um, photographs of him at another place. But these things don't seem to matter to a state that um, is intent on on targeting activists and using. Um, state resources to ensure that that voice is not heard. Mm. So yeah, so he's in jail, and I've been trying to get him. Um, he's he's now he's been in jail today for. Uh, well, by the time the show airs, he'll be have been in jail for forty four days. Wow. Um, wow. Still on his bail hearing. A bail hearing normally takes fifteen minutes. Hmm. 
Um, My and goodness. It's, and it's day 15 of his bail hearing. But the Oscar <laughs> trial, I think, was shorter than his bail hearing. <laughs> that's <laughs> Which is unreal. Not, I mean, it's Probably. not funny. It's, it's really yeah. sad. That, um, but do you think that's deliberate on the part of… Oh, it's been absolutely deliberate. We've seen them… Institutions. You know, so, so you'll go to court and then they'll hold… Um, you'll arrive in the morning. You know, normally court starts at 9 o'clock. And they'll call the case at quarter to 4. Oh. And then you'll sit and the magistrate will say, sorry… Um, there's not enough time to hear this case today. Let's postpone it. So we're going back on Thursday and Friday this week. Mm. So I think the show airs on Thursday. So we'll yeah. be going back on Thursday to to support him and, again, call for his release and taking more evidence that he couldn't possibly have been there. We've had journalists who were with him at the time where this murder was committed hmm. and we have testified. So he wasn't there, you know. But um, it seems it doesn't matter much evidence we bring. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's very intentional. You know, I think Marikana, it's over 100 years, almost yeah. 100 years of, of these mines uh, that have become some of the wealthiest companies in the world. Yeah. And people in Marikana continue to live in abject poverty. So mm. uh, there's another mine um, just up from Lonman called the uh, Teresa Mine. Mm. Um, and there was a community... That was moved from that uh, for that mine to oh, wow. to to be based there, and that community is now living. They were formerly living in uh, brick houses. They're now living in shacks. There's no schools. There's no uh, amenities for that community. Uh, so Napoleon's been standing up and calling for Teresa Mine to to um, fulfill its obligations in terms of. The mining charters, also sure. Lonman as well. Anyway, we can get into this for a long time, <laughs> but, but uh, no. But I mean, before Talisa goes ahead um, and we get into the discussion, what I'd really like to know: you seem uh, called, <clears throat> in, in a sense, mm. to address these types of issues. Um, I mean, we'll talk now about economic injustice, but it just seems something in you um, is is an activist and a civil society leader. And so, I would just like to know about your early background mm. and kind of what led you. Yeah. So I'm that white guy they don't tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> I really was on the other side of the system, you know. So, um, yeah. and I grew up in, I went to an all white school. I got a privileged education. And, um, and yeah, it's all part of a journey. And I think South Africa, we've got to take people on journeys. And I, I know that the last couple of years we've been on some, some journeys together as a nation to rediscover what, what it means to be South African and revisiting some of the deals that were made in 1994 and the implications that of what we're living in now. Mm. But yeah, I mean, for my, my early bar, I studied social work. Okay. Um, and that kind of got me into it. But, you know, I got married and, um, and then realized I needed to provide for my family. <laughs> and so I started doing project management work and soon I was, I was, uh, I was working for, Doing consulting work and earning a whole lot of money, and we hmm. had a six-bedroom house in Midrand, and wow. um, and we realised we were just completely divorced from from the realities of West South Africa. We had two cars, we had you know the whole yeah. deal, uh, kids in private schools, and realised we don't know don't know our neighbours. We're living in a country where for, at that that was seven eight years ago. You know, 57% of South Africans living in extreme poverty, highest inequality ratios in the world, and looked at that and realized, man, we are part of this problem. Yeah. Um, and the more we look at, yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, both Trish and I, my wife Trish, we, we talked about, we, we don't want to live in a world mm. that looks like this mm. in 20, 30 years' time. And what do we need to do? 
to to confront that. So, I, I, yeah, I, I'm going to say something very controversial, but anyway, um, I think the the role of white South Africans is at the moment. I think white South Africans need to commit class suicide. That hmm. we've actually got to it's give up powerful. our privilege, and when we give up our privilege, we've then got to move into communities to stand in solidarity so with powerful. those communities until we see the back of the back of extreme poverty and inequality broken in South Africa. So that for me would be my message to white South Africans, but I'm a white South African, so I can speak to white South Africans. Yeah, <laughs> so, no. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, to, to say white South Africans need to commit class suicide, I know probably lots of your listeners are going, oh no, there's a, there's another completely crazy radical. No, well, you already said that um, you're the white guy they don't tell us about. <laughs> there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason why. <laughs> but I, I do think, you know, I mean, I don't know if it was like this for you, but I think all of us, we start out, we earn a little bit mm. uh, when we start out, then we earn a bit more and we live off a bit more, we earn a bit more, we live off more, we earn off more, we live yes, off more. Yes, absolutely. Until eventually the circle that we're living off is just so large mm. and completely out of out of um, out of context, you know, with, they say the top 10% of South Africans mm. Uh, the richest 10% earn 80 times more than the bottom 10%. Hmm. I mean, there's something fundamentally wrong with it. That's not even a CO to worker ratio. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we were in the UK recently and they've just uh, gone up to a ratio of, I think it's about 120 to 1 CO to, to hmm. worker ratio. And they're saying that's absolutely insane. South Africa CO to worker ratio is sitting at 540 to 1. Wow. The highest in the world. Our CEOs are earning on average. <laughs> 7.4 million US dollars per year. Mm. Seventh highest paid CEOs in the world. Get out of this here. This is in South Africa and now <laughs> we're, we're talking about domestic workers and, um, you know, the, 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 our two richest South Africans. Mm. What's his name? Um, uh, Rupert, Rupert and Rupert Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer. Yeah. and Visa. The, mm. They're kind of neck and neck, uh, I think, yes. 6.7, 6.8, and 6.9 The Lurus are also somewhere. Dollars, yeah. <laughs> are you there as well, Molly? <laughs> <laughs> so um, if, if you look at their – just the top two's combined income – is equivalent to the bottom 50% of South Africans. Mm. That's just two. You take the 16 wealthiest South Africans, four and a half, four and a half times the bottom 50% of South Africans. 16 people have got the equivalent wealth to 22, 25 million. Okay, so that is an illness. That is literally a social illness. So when you say something like class suicide, I don't actually think you're exaggerating. Yeah. But you, you mentioned that it's gotten worse. Um, can you elaborate yeah. on that? Do you have ideas on so, why? So, I mean, I do think, yeah, we weren't going to be talking about this. But anyway, let's no, go for it. So, no, yeah. we feel right yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. You, you broke the <laughs> ice. <laughs> the whole show, actually. <laughs> okay, so, so I, I mean, you talk about these these issues. So we go back to 1994 and um, and we look at the deals that were made in 1994. So we had, for example, we took the IMF loan. Mm. And when we took that IMF loan, there were certain conditions put onto our economy in terms of the way the economy would be managed. Mm. So we've had, we've had, um, Gear, Esquisa that have all a neoliberal kind of economic strategy. What is neoliberalism? Neoliberal, mm. Neoliberalism. I'm not an economist, but let me give you the <laughs> 22nd. What is neoliberalism? It's when we outsource the public good to the private sector or we, we entrust the private sector. Hmm. With, um, Shady. with, with, <laughs> with, um, provision of services, etc. Yeah. Mm. So I think that we've, we've put, 
the, the problems in South Africa have been around our collusion between business and government. Yeah. And was we've that left the, civil society completely out of the picture, out of the mix. But at that time, was that their only option? Because before, if you had a government working for the 10% and now having to work for the yeah. extra 90%, was there actually public capacity? I mean, it's interesting because I mean, I, I grew up. Ninety four is where, is when I was. Um, I would have been twenty three in ninety four, mm. so that was when I was young and dreaming, and <laughs> that's essentially why I am who I am. Is because mm. ninety four shaped me. I was mm. uh, nineteen eighty eight is when I finished school. Those four or five years of my life were dreaming of a new South Africa and what it could be like. Mm. So I was, Nelson Mandela was my hero. Right. I had a photo up with Sura Maposa. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> Sorry and about that. I measured this. I thought, he's the man. You oh, know? Um, and, and fast forward 20 years into our democracy, where, where, what is, what is that trajectory taking us on? And we see the deals. We, we had the, 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 Primary listings of Old Mutual and Sunlum moving yeah. to London. We had hmm. um, now that I mean that capital yeah. and the the wealth that had been built up in the country now is controlled from somewhere else. It's and just I, crazy. I guess you know? when you mention someone like Cyril Ramaphosa, Mike, who you know was uh, a civil society leader, he was uh, leader of Kosatu, right? Yeah, and someone like that then becomes for a long time. Squarely a businessman, right? Um, and then, okay, Lord knows what's happening now. But my point is, your question was around, was there capacity? My question is around, was there intent? Mm. Um, because if you How did he become a billionaire so quickly? Exactly. Yeah? And then if, and look, you know, human beings are, <laughs> all human beings are flawed and we're driven by self-interest. But I wonder if, uh, if there was a shift in intentions, not from not from the white government government, but from 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 black leadership, when things mm. like BE were dangled um, as carrots in their faces. I mean, people talk often about how BE actually was a a, a white capitalist policy. Yeah, right. It was intended to create a buffer between yeah. leadership and 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 yeah. the public. Yeah. Um. So I I want to know from you. Do you think? There was intent. Do you think there is intent? I'm not. I'm not privy to what actually happened. You know, mm. and uh, and that's the thing is is we can see the fruit of these things, mm. and we can see what's happened. And we have. I mean, it certainly seems from the outside that. I mean, how is it possible that a man who who was a trade union leader mm. is now a billionaire? Polar opposites. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, that's what puts Marikana at such. That brings all sorts of things into question because this trade union leader mm. is now the one that's that's negotiating mm, uh, on behalf of the company and and tries to criminalise uh, the, the the strike action. I mm. mean, it's just it's just insane that anybody would think that somebody with that knowledge mm. would not know that this is a right, and that's a right that he was involved in drafting in the constitution My in 1994. Goodness. So he, he was, he was one of our principal drafters. So he would have known very well what labor rights were. He probably was right at the front with his trade union background at, at negotiating that stuff. So for him to now come in 19, in, in, in 2012 and now say, you know, so I I don't, I, I, that's not even a crisis of conscience. That's just weird. (laughs) It's crazy what's happened. Weird is polite. (laughs) I mean, what happened in Marikana was, is for me, it's it's bringing these things to a head, you know. Yeah. So, mm. um, I mean, the the South African rand and how we've 
we've um, uh, opened up exchange controls and been able to so, – so many of these big companies are now uh, the, the mines. So, for example, Lonman at the Farlam Commission, we heard about how they're practicing transfer pricing. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, what transfer pricing is where they take um, the platinum and they sell it in a tax haven – at a lower price. Hmm. I mean, this is, you know, again, a, not, a very quick explanation, but they, they sell it at a lower price to a tax haven and then sell it from that tax haven at the international oh, market wow. price. So in other words, what then happens is in South Africa, they declare that they haven't been making these massive profits, but their but international they actually companies, are, just transferred them. The, the profits are made outside of the country Shucks. in tax havens and, and our wealth is literally being transferred hmm. out via these tax havens. And these people are now running off with, with oh, my mineral, mineral resources. So, yeah, South Africa's South Africa's in a little bit of a mess. Which goes, I mean, to be <laughs> honest, I'm just a. Uh, for me, I'm I'm an individual. I'm broken. I'm. I've got. I grew up as a white South African. I was part of an oppressive system. I'm, my whiteness still matters in South mm. Africa, and um, and the question for me is. How do I live authentically? Yeah. And what's the right thing to do? Mm. And if we ask that question, what, what is the South Africa I dream of? I dream of a South Africa that's equal. Mm. I dream of a South Africa where people are treated with dignity and respect. Um, where one day I, I dream of a country that is, um, that w- where the color of your skin doesn't mm. determine your 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 life and your trajectory and whether you go to college and whether you go to you know what kind of education you get what kind of job you get if you mm. but um the south africa i live in now doesn't look like that no, so not at all. so the question for me is how do i become the picture that i dream of when i talk about class suicide i think that it is about beginning to say how do we live off less you know mother teresa she used to say this she said mm. live simply so others can simply live <laughs> and um the reality in south africa gandhi said this you quoted gandhi earlier mm. he said um, there's enough for everyone's need but not enough for everyone's greed <laughs> and and we're living in a south africa where we have such extreme poverty we're we're an upper middle income country according to the <laughs> the um IMF and mm. World Bank. They've classified as upper middle income. Because of the extreme wealth. Because we've, I mean, our per capita income yeah. is just so large. We've got a huge GDP per yeah. capita. So as, as a country, we've got enough to meet the needs. So most international funders are now withdrawing from South Africa. So when you look at civil society in South Africa, it's part of the reason why we're so weak is because we're such a wealthy country. And, but the problem is most <laughs> of our wealth is in the hands of so few. Mm, and sure. uh, I, I, I think that if I were to describe South Africa, you know, we, I was talking to the, in the car on the way here to a friend and was saying, I suppose your life is about confronting capitalism. I said, well, capitalism was never meant to be this. No, it wasn't. If you read the, if exactly. you read the fathers of yes. capitalism, Adam Smith and stuff, they talk about this, the common good. and they talk Social about responsibility these, exactly. is huge. Yeah. Adam Smith is big on that, yeah. yeah. But it, for me, what it's become is it's become – Oligarchical cronyism if you like. And it's not sustainable And I think mm. I don't question That Adam Smith Was a capitalist yeah. But he Wasn't necessarily Even a capitalist With a conscience Right But he understood mm. Sustainability And social cohesion mm. And social justice yeah. Is such an important part Of economic sustainability yeah. If you want wealth to last If you want You know You need You need the political climate To be right You need the social climate To be right And those are, are Things And 
you know, for me, I, what I would like to appeal to is, is just, if not people's consciences, right? You know, say businessmen are too far gone, just they're smart in terms of economic sustainability. And this mm-hmm. is not for me. Self-preservation. Exactly. Yeah. This is not yeah. viable for for yeah. future generations at all. Mm. But <laughs> that I think we should get into. <laughs> well, actually, it's not completely off topic. <laughs> Just to say, so there's an IMF study that was done. Mm. And um, that was in 2015. And they looked at uh, 159 countries. 159 countries, about 184, 185 yeah, countries in the world. So it's a significant percentage of the countries. They looked from 1980 to 2012. And they said that if you give a 1% increase to the top 20 quintile, mm. you get on average a, 0.3, um, a, um, a 0.38% decrease in GDP growth. So in other oh, words, wow. when you increase the income to the top 1%, mm. uh, to, to the top 20%, by just 1%, mm. you decrease the overall growth mm. wow. in the economy. Wow. When you give uh, a 1% increase to the bottom 20%, you get an increase of uh, 0.08% in mm. GDP growth. So if we want to grow our GDP, we mm. have to put more money into the bottom of the economy. That was a study over 30 years, 159 countries. How do you grow the GDP? What is it's just business the, sense. What wow. does the neoliberal mm. agenda tell us? It says how you grow our GDP is to make it business-friendly, create safer rules for businesses, to create yes. less restrictions for them to mm. exploit the poor. Mm. And what happens is they get richer and richer and richer mm. and richer. And the trajectory that we've been on for the last mm. 20 years in South Africa, our, our Gini coefficient in 1994 was sitting at about 0.55. It's now sitting at 0.65 to 0.69, depending which study mm. you look at. So we've become – I mean, it, it was 2006 at its height. I think we have – over the last sort of 10 years begun to address it a little bit mm. but but Gini coefficient is a measure of inequality yeah. Yeah. so um, the, the trajectory that we've been on is a more unequal society and if we're going to change it the topic at hand of domestic workers and, mm. and not just domestic workers but minimum wage generally yeah. mm. um, is absolutely vital. T- tackling minimum wage, creating a living wage for people is vital to transforming our economy and creating an equality. So what you say certainly debunks the the myth that the economy will crash if exactly. <laughs> the minimum wage is increased, you know. Um, but just explain to us what is a living wage. So um, there's uh, different definitions of living wage around the world. Maybe to start, maybe I could just start with minimum wage because I mm. think that's what people are most familiar with. Yeah. Minimum wage is a, a legislated wage base. Which, yeah, wow. which I loved that you wrote actually in your article. Like to, to actually bring it to that is actually wow. very thought provoking. <laughs> what I did with, with our own, uh, with Lois was we, See, even the, the way that I talk, you know, what I did with our Lois, she doesn't belong to me, you know, and it's something that has been so ingrained in us as South Africans, you know, we say things like, um, oh, she's part of my family. Is she really part of your family? Is she, is she, does she have an inheritance? Is she going to share an inheritance? Do you, you know, um, but anyway, I've got to undo our language a bit, you yeah, know, for sure. um, she was working for me and, um, and we, I got a dietitian and nutritionist to help me with purchasing for her over three months what she needed for food. And back then, 
we couldn't get less than 2,000 rand a month for her family of four mm. to meet all of her RDA requirements. You know, Stats SA use this food poverty line. And they look at the, I think it's 1,200 kilojoules a day that you need to survive. Mm. So, but, but that's just kilojoules. That's yeah, just, exactly. And then they talk about this concept called hidden hunger, <laughs> where you're not getting enough nutrients to develop. Yeah. So you find yourself oh. tired. You find brain development is, there's challenges with that. <laughs> I mean, every single one of these five areas of food, shelter, clothing, basic needs and things that will break you out of poverty. We could talk for, for hours on each one of these. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially what we did was we we looked at all five of these areas and we said, okay, well, shelter, what do we need for dignified shelter? And again, you know, um, if, if you look at South Africa and our housing crisis, mm. my view is that mom and dad must have their own room. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't be sitting in a situation. In Hillbrow, where I live, it's a little bit perverse. people will have a flat, yeah. and that flat will be divided into four or five rooms, yes. and each room will have a family inside of it, mom, dad, and kids all together in one room. Yeah. Now, I don't think that that's dignified. I think that we've got to have a situation in South Africa, we've got to move towards making sure that people who work for us, mm. that mom and dad can at least have their own room. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, And then there's other... There's, so, so what is that going to cost, you know? And I think, you know, currently in the inner city, um, you're looking at, if you're looking at a two room place, you're looking at least four, three, four thousand rand, you know? Are, are um, you serious? For, for a room in the inner city. Um, people oh, rent the rooms. room only. Room only, people will oh, rent wow. for, for between one, five and two thousand rand a okay. month. That's oh. just one room. Wow. So if we're looking at two rooms for mom and dad and, and also the kids, which still is not dignified. Yeah. It's going to cost a lot more than that, you know? Yeah. Well, let's actually touch a little bit on that because if you're, if you're dealing with the, the larger issues around shelters, so, you know, proximity as well to infrastructure, yeah. safety in the neighborhood, yeah. all those kinds of things, access to, um, to, to resources, so like water and electricity, um, and, and then you have a family that maybe is themselves struggling or just, you know, not earning enough to be able to afford yeah. a living wage, then how how do we, um, what do you decide is more important? You know, how do you then narrow down to what is a basic need? Well, yeah, I mean, normally these things are prioritized by the family themselves who who getting the wages. And a how family I'm, being the employers or a family being? Uh, the the person that's trying to pay a living wage. Yeah. So the employer, so the employer's yeah. family, yeah, right. Well, I think I, I don't think that that um, necessarily you're going to be determining for the your worker how they're going to spend their money. You pay the worker a wage, which you think is fair, mm. and the worker then just determines how they spend their their income. So I think that those things get determined by what you what what somebody's but earning and how they're going to live off that. Are you asking if they can't afford that themselves? Mm. Yeah, so how can they be expected to pay that yeah. to but, somebody else? Yeah, but, I, but I'm sort of um, so I'm imagining, so say they do like you did and you sit down with your domestic worker, you work all of this out, you, you realize... Out they need 7,000 rand a month. Or yes. Yeah. Or say they need 5,000 rand alone just for mm-hmm. shelter, right? So that they're in a place that is safe, so that they have easy access to public transport, all those kinds of things. Things, right, so that's a part of your calculation, and you realize that that's just not something yeah. you can afford. 
what is you know, like how do you determine then what yeah. you know really do you, yeah do you determine whether you can reduce that amount and yeah. you you might maybe sacrifice yeah, so your maybe safety is, let's say you've now decided you're going to you you want to now pay a living wage mm. and you're sitting there and you're saying well i can only afford uh 3000 rand a month or 4000 rand a month mm. um what i would do is i would sit with the the employee and I would say I would work out what they need in order to to live and and I think most studies in our showing could have sort of between six and seven thousand is round of where living wages at the moment mm. but essentially it's based on the individual employee if it's a single woman and uh, she's not going to have the same expenses as a as a person who's got maybe two kids or a family or whatever you know mm. so we need to look at what's what what's required to live off yeah um, but but let's say that a person needs um, needs six thousand and you can only afford four. Mm. Essentially, you can only afford to employ them That's, for two thirds of the time. I absolutely agree with that, and I always feel like the issue is that we monopolize their time. Yeah, completely. Do you know what I mean? So, and I suppose the the crisis of conscience is: should you have a domestic worker if you can't afford one? Yeah. Given, but that, it's also not that simple. Yeah, you know, because of people's lifestyles, the immense yeah. amount of stress and pressure that they're exactly. under, and exactly, exactly. So that's what I'm saying. That's that, yes. that's always the yeah. crisis. And I suppose, <laughs> you know, in an ideal world, you'd be proactive to say, "Look, if I can't," and we've heard of employers have done this, right? If I can't afford to give you what you need, first of all, how do I not monopolize your time? And secondly, how do I try to find alternative ways? Or work for you to supplement that. In, I think that the kind of things you can do is to to reduce the number of days that a person works for you. So if they, if you can only afford three thousand and they need six thousand, you can only afford to pay the to to employ them for two and a half days a week. Yeah, yeah. That might if 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 it's in the area of childcare, for example, and you need somebody for childcare, and you can only afford two and a half thousand rand a month, maybe you need to get together with some friends, yeah, and then together two or three of you make sure that you can pay yeah. six thousand rand. Yeah. So, so there are ways to, but the bottom line is, you you can't pay somebody less because you think that you. You're just giving them employment. What you're actually doing is you're exploiting them. And, yeah. and let's be honest about that. Um, if, if you exploit somebody, you're shortening their life expectancy. You're keeping their kids in poverty. Mm. You're making sure that they live under deplorable conditions. Mm. And that's what you're doing to a person. So it's it's not poverty that's doing it to them. It's yeah. you as the employer that's doing it to them. And I mean, it's such an interesting thing because in our country, we're, we know that there's quite a high percentage of unemployment. And so I think it definitely has contributed to that idea that, you know, you're doing someone a favor yeah. if they have a job. Mm, mm. Um, <clears throat> but how do we start holding, if at all, is that is that possible to start holding people accountable to the quality of life that they pr yeah. provide the person? I mean, where do we begin? Yeah. I mean, I, I think South Africans are, we value driven, you know, we've fought for the struggle, everybody knows the constitution and we all know about mm. this. The core things in our constitution are we believe in dignity, human dignity. That's at the center. Mm. All the other rights flow from that. You know, we believe in the right to life and the right to dignity. And if we believe in those things, every South African you talk to, doesn't matter if they still employ somebody in an exploitative way, their eyes open up when they realize that they are 
contributing to shortened life expectancy or these <laughs> kinds of things. And, and I, I think we've got to appeal to conscience. But then I also think the second thing, an important thing, is we've got to advocate for an increase of the universal minimum wage. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk um, – uh, Universal minimum wage. Currently in South Africa, we've got sectoral wage determinations. Mm. And those sectoral, so we've got, for example, an a- agriculture, domestic yeah. work, mining, yeah. etc. Mm-hmm. Now those sectors, um, that, that have got sectoral determination account for 57% of all workers. 43% of all workers are not covered under the sectoral de- determination. Mm-hmm. So that means about 2.85 million people in South Africa are unprotected without any minimum wage legislation. Fortunately, domestic workers are covered, but even, even so, as you read earlier. So we've got to, I think we've got to, we've got to argue for, for universal minimum wage. Um, and we've got to equip ourselves with the arguments. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so when, when you talk about universal minimum wage, people say, oh, that'll be a disaster for the economy. We'll actually quote actually every single study that has been done, aggregate studies that have been done. Aggregate studies are studies of studies. Yeah. So aggregate studies that have been done have showed that, that investing into the bottom of the, the economy results in overall GDP growth. And yeah. the reason for that is, is suddenly there's disposable income into the economy. When you put more money into the bottom of the economy, you create jobs, yeah. not just jobs. So you put more money into the hands of the poor. You it's create, productivity. You create food, you, you create jobs in food, you create, you know, childcare jobs. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. People can now afford to do things in their communities, and that money just gets recycled. Mm-hmm. When you put money up at the top, the money gets spent on things like investments. It doesn't go into the hands Private of jets. the economy. <laughs> 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 Is that what you spent yeah. your last decrease on? Uh, yeah, in my Possibly. past life as an Oppenheimer. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, I actually am very curious about the other three cogs. So you spoke about the two, the first two being um, food, food and shelter. Mm-hmm. Clothing. Clothing. So, yeah, I mean, again, clothing is an interesting one. Eh? Mm. Um, so I just need to say on shelter, I, I was very aware that I was speaking to an architect town planner. Town. Oh, yeah, of course. It no, was, I should have. <laughs> It was very apparent there. Yeah, it, it, and yeah. all of those oh, things. Oh, show. Oh, no, no, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, you don't show. So hey? You don't hold back. Article off <laughs> to you. I think I, I think that that looking at what dignity is in that in that lived environment is important, and working that out, yeah. and working out some formulas would be very helpful into the living wage debate space, and even into the minimum wage space. So, mm. but yeah, so I think that that's important. So then clothing. Sure. For me, my view of clothing is a big hand clap. <laughs> I think of clothing. I mean, what, what do you think clothing needs are of people? I think they must have at least one outfit for every single function. But of course, you also need two outfits for some things as well, you know. Um, yeah. Because there's also so much dignity with clothing. Yeah. There's stigma. There's, you know, sometimes when you're that one kid that's got inherited clothes from their older siblings and they're always, you know, you're always that kid with the old clothes. Yeah. It makes an impression on you and, and your, your peers also perceive you as something. So mm. again, like in terms of those psychological implications of clothing, <laughs> where's the limit? Especially for kids. Eh? It's yeah. very, it's very, very blurry. Um, and I mean, we've just done a big clothing piece with domestic workers, uh, where we got, the first year students at UJ as part of their final assessment to um, does redesign the domestic worker uniform. Wow. Um, and really, that was, uh, that exercise 
went beyond just the functionality. Yes, that was extremely important that it be practical and durable and all those good things, as well as um, that it, it, it protects their bodies, right? Mm. But beyond that was an, an issue of stigma, which was yeah. an aesthetic. And what we realized was... Because initially, I mean, you think aesthetic things are luxuries, but what we realize is that that domestic worker aesthetic that hasn't changed forever, hmm. right, has started to carry a certain stigma where it almost it, it carries it carries with it their position in our society yeah. and our image of them, um, and so they would talk about things like. You know, because of these clothes, uh, when I, when I go to shops, I don't receive the same service. Yeah. My kids are embarrassed to be seen with me. It's really hard to date because this uniform is, is the symbol of, of, of e- everything else. It's almost like they're reminded of their limits every day. Hmm. You know, what they cannot access because, hmm. you know, a lot of them plan to maybe just be in the job for about six months and 30 years later, they're still there. Hmm. And so it becomes a constant reminder of what they were unable to access. So they were like, can you just give us a more, <laughs> a more dignified aesthetic? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know? And sure. <laughs> so when I wrote my article, uh, <laughs> I wasn't thinking of those things, and I'm, I mean, this is it. This is we all on journeys, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think, yeah. No, um, I mean, I think it's important to first get clothes there <laughs> to begin period. with. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, and then we can discuss. So the, yeah, just to to say, with food, shelter, clothing, all of those things are monetized. So yeah. So working out for food, two thousand shelter was this, clothing was this, and again, clothing. You have to, I suppose. How often do you buy an outfit? How often does a family need to buy various? What, what is your what what is your clothing budget? No, I, I won't ask that. Oh, you ask um, Is that a well? Re- I think it's worth thinking about actually because I don't have one, which already shows my privilege. <laughs> because just whenever I feel like it, I get something. Um, okay, I don't know about feel like it, girl. <laughs> <laughs> but I it's almost <laughs> no, no. But but not not in that sense. Like in general, I don't I don't particularly. It's like whenever you can buy right? clothes. But no, it, no, it's when I find something that I really don't want to leave behind that I get it. Okay. Yeah. yeah so, but that's a luxury. Yeah. It's a complete luxury that I can do that. Yeah. But so, I don't often buy clothes. So mm. it's not that I have a high budget for it mm. at all. Mm. But it's, yeah, when I, when, yeah. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd work out what, what is it that, um, you think for a school uniform, for yeah. a winter outfit, for a summer outfit, for work clothes, for. And considering ex- how long they would last as well. Et cetera. Work out that, work it out for the year. Yeah. And, and, and put that into a month, per month figure. Mm-hmm. Clothing, basic needs. For basic needs, what, um, so, so for me, um, a lot of our Christian convictions drove, mm. drove this. And, um, I remember, uh, reading this uh, on Living Wage out of Isaiah 58, hmm. and Isaiah 58 is this this text that says, um, it says, uh, you live with your pleasures and you exploit your workers. Hmm. It's almost that's how mm. it starts out. I've always this is the kind of fast you've chosen. I've always read that text and thought, oh my goodness, it's about fasting and we must care for the poor when we're fasting. But it's actually about the worker, um, the worker employer relationship. Yeah. And then it says, it says, provide the wanderer with shelter. Um, and then it goes through these five different areas. So, um, it says, um, feed the hungry, mm. um, provide the wonder with shelter, uh, 
clothing, it says, uh, clothe the naked. Mm -hmm. It says, satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And then it says, um, untie the cords of the yoke. So that was where I got those five budgeting areas from, was out of Isaiah 58. Because I I felt that they were five areas that, that are important budget areas to meet. So when it came to basic needs in South African context, transport, you mentioned, how far does the person live from their place of work? Yeah. How much is transport going to cost? You look at people living, uh, there, there was that couple that moved into Mamalodi for a month and they did this budget of what they lived mm. off. And they found they were spending one third of their income. Um, they were trying to live off two or three thousand rand a month. I can't remember what it was. But they spent one third of their income wow. on, on transport. Mm. And, uh, you know, people are spending seven, seven, eight hundred rand a month on transport. Mm. Um, so, Transport, cell phones, communications, school fees. Um, what else would be basic needs that people would have? Um, what are your basic needs that? I guess a school. Toiletries, schooling. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting. I don't think about these things. I'm you just go myself. buy them. I must come and hang with you a bit more. Maybe you can <laughs> no, it's stuff. true. That, <laughs> no, that but stumped because, me as well. Yeah. And it's, it's because... Because we have our comforts and we have our needs. because we have them. Yeah. yeah. You know, one way or the other. And, and by no means are either of us... Electricity, water. Yes. Um, exactly. Mm. See, this is the thing. I, I, I yeah. don't think about where I'm going to get my electricity or water from. Just uh, just on the side, my... my um, a housing company that I rent from in Hillbrow charges me 173 rand a month for sanitation. Mm. So I have to pay 173 rand a month to use the toilet in Hillbrow. Oh, um, that's amazing. Just in addition to my rent. Do you see what I'm saying? I just go. <laughs> <laughs> I also just go to I the bill. <laughs> but, but there was a little bit of a... You might need a schedule. <laughs> no, but, but each toilet Monitor is, your is charged. For, it gets a sanitation charge added onto my bill, you know. Wow. Um, Does that make you monitor your fluids? I, I swear. <laughs> Oh, girl. <laughs> okay, we're going to move. Yeah. So food shelter. No, I just think it's an interesting uh, thing. No, let me make, no, I'm, I'm think, not being yeah. facetious. I actually think for me, when, for me, going to the toilet is an inalienable, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, and if I had to pay, if I knew I had to pay to go, I might monitor my consumption. Yeah. And I that's what I mean. I, would, I, think, I might monitor how much I'm eating. I, I think the municipality does charge everybody uh, a cost for your through your rates and taxes. So you get a sanitation charge, a water charge, an electricity charge that comes in your in your household, in your rates and taxes bill. Yeah. Now, but obviously, if you're living in a flat and you're renting, that thing gets divided into the number of flats that are there. It was just interesting. Oh. I saw it on the bill the but other day. But it's hugely important. 173 rand a day is what I'm paying for sanitation. Uh, 173 rand a month <laughs> is what I pay for my because. Ex- if you think about kids, if you oh. think about kids, there was um, there was a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know if he was called like Doctor Toilet or something, but there was this guy, a social entrepreneur, who was trying to address um, sanitation in p- poor schools, right? Yeah. And how bad the toilets were, and how actually it was affecting yeah. um, the the kids and their productivity. It was affecting their consumption, so they they wouldn't drink as much water, they wouldn't eat as much because they knew they couldn't use the loo. Um, girls would obviously stay away for long, you know, uh, stay away from school. For, yes, mm. during their menstrual cycle because yeah. that was an issue. So I actually think it is something yeah. that's that's hugely important. Yeah, sanitation is a big thing. It's a, it is a fundamental human right, and yeah. um, 
and you know we we've talked about eradicating bucket toilets and mm. you go to schools in in um in these informal settlements and you'll have a school with 1000 1500 pupils and they have six Bucket toilets, and you think, how on earth do a thousand people use six bucket toilets? It's just and the knock-on effects are amazing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Anyway, so food, shelter, clothing, basic needs, and then untying the cords of the yoke, or or um, ensuring people can break out of out of poverty. Okay. So, um, in fact, there was a pope back in the, at the turn of the nineteenth century, in eighteen ninety eight, who who wrote. Uh, a papal decree called Rerum Novarum mm-hmm. and he said that if a person earns a living wage it should be enough that they can uh, save a little to enable them to break out of poverty I think that that um, uh, I don't know what, what you what you save but my friends have always said 10% is a really good percentage to aim for for savings maybe mm-hmm. you save a lot more per month um, but but we we want people to be able to put away some money for for rough times. Yeah. And and let me tell you, when you're living in poverty, crises happen for on an ongoing time. basis. Yes, Absolutely. That's the other so, thing about, right? so, you know, and actually, I, I really like that you said that because I do want to get a little bit into, you know, breaking the cycle of poverty because it's not just about having money, but it's about knowing what to do once you have money. Yeah. Um, and so understanding, you know, financial literacy, knowing how the system works, because yeah. unfortunately that's the system that they're in. Um, but now when you have things like that, so you have your savings, but you have constant issues yeah. and your savings keep running dry or just, mm. you know, keep being um, used up. Um, how, 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 can we aid in contributing to understanding how to or what to better do with the money that we have, whether little or a lot? I think you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> but, um, it's a big question. It's a big question. It's <laughs> sure. a big question. I think, yeah, sure. Uh, and, and to go back to, to, to add to the question is what can employees do, uh, employ, yeah, employers do in order to assist people to build resilience against these things. Yeah. So when your employees employers when your employees coming to you all the time, the domestic work the domestic workers come to you and saying, Look, um uh my um child is getting kicked out of school and I have to go and sort out the school. Um or I have to go to the child's school to go to to investigate it and find, oh, school fees are not being paid. Maybe we need to pay, pay a bit more to make sure school mm. fees are paid. Or, um, uh, you know, there's when there's problems that are happening, is to try and identify what are these systemic problems and work together with with people in partnership to to address them. Because no, just why it's such a big issue in my head is because when and and just a big issue in general is when I um, first started doing my, you know, like practice in architecture. Now, I'm someone that has had access to higher education, to lecturers, to the networks. Um, and it wasn't easy, it wasn't difficult for me to get jobs. But once I was there, there was still the impression that they would, they would, um, train the white uh, people in ways that they weren't training us, mm. you know, the the black practitioners. There were things we just didn't know, and there were things we weren't privy to. And this is with us supposedly having access mm. to knowing how the system works. Yeah. Mm. So that's why I'm wondering. So in spite of having the income or having the job or having exposure, how do we how do we get through that? Is, through, it, sure. 
Is education a, a big part of, I mean, the fifth cog was around. For how to break out of generational poverty. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of my friends have done things like set up educational trust funds. I think for white South Africans, it is something that we need to be doing in terms of restitution. Um, I think education and so, so if you look at things that keep people in poverty, I think education is big. And then I think the other thing is access to finance. Yeah. And probably uh, I still think one of the biggest things is is a lack of access to connections. Mm, so Absolutely. So such a big thing in this country, my completely. friend. Oh my god. Oh, and actually based on what you've just said was your experience now. Yeah. Uh, and what's remarkable what about what you've done, right? Integrating yourself yeah. in Hillbrow. Um, and taking just taking that step before you you ever sat down with Loison and, and yeah, tried yeah. to figure out what is a living wage, but simply opening up networks of yes. opportunity. So if my friends can meet your friends, absolutely. absolutely. And, and for me, so I think the first thing if you want to help somebody who's trapped in poverty, and I'm, I mean, I think the first thing that we can do is share our connections, and yeah. it's which we don't do. Completely. That's the one thing we don't yeah. do. Mm. We almost do everything but that. <laughs> Essentially, at the heart of white privilege mm. is yeah. connectedness. Yes, co- so, so what are we? So, <laughs> <laughs> the penny drops. Uh, there we go. At the heart of white privilege <laughs> is connectedness. So, connectedness is how do we shake? So, I've got a friend Jethro who who um, I think you've met him. Eh? Yeah, I have. He's visually yeah. impaired. Um, and, uh, he was, he's, uh, he's blind. He came across from, from Zimbabwe 2007 and he was begging on the streets for a living. And, you know, we became good friends. Um, and eventually what I did was I brought one of my friends who was living in Bryanston, who's got his MBA, brought him in touch with, with Jethro and they formed a friendship. And through that friendship, um, my friend Mike helped Jethro to hmm. to start a business. He's now got a laundry gang. They employ four people. My goodness. And it's just because I brought two people together. I didn't contribute any money into that. Well, I, I mean, uh, we're always helping our friends together, aren't we? <laughs> but but uh, um, when we bring friends together um, and we, we bring connections together, we break the back of poverty. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I also just want to say on that, I want to put caution is that I mean, as a white South African, and I'm talking a lot about whiteness, but um, and I, I oh, we love talking about whiteness. Yeah, we do. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, whiteness, blackness, blackness, all kinds of ness, all that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we need to be ness. I mean, nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, if you if you want to be white, nice. What does that mean? <laughs> we've got to move. We've got to move beyond our white savior mentality. We've got yeah. to kind of move beyond this. This patronizing, mm. I'm here to solve poverty. Absolutely. I think that that what we need to aim for in our relationships with people is equality. So the question is, how do I form equal relationships with people that I'm that are poor? So when we've moved into Hillbrow, one of the things is that's been a big question. Just we're always having conversations about how how do I break down these barriers, and it's very difficult. There's barriers of class, there's barriers of race, there's bar- mm. barriers of nationality. Mm. Um, there's all sorts of barriers, not only from my side, but from the the uh, from Jethro's side. Certainly, there was a lot of stuff from both sides. And the question is, the 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 truth that I've discovered is in Jethro is a gift for me. Hmm. 
that he's got an abundance of that I can learn from. And in me, there's an abundance in me that he can have. And when we share the abundance in mutual. both of us, and we, we seek mutuality in our friendships and yeah. mutual equality. So I see him as a valuable person and I seek to learn from him. My friend who's worked, one of the, my friends is just the absolute hero of mine. Um, Angie Barker and worked amongst, uh, lived in, in urban slums for, I don't know, 20 years. Hmm. But she came to visit and I took her to go and meet Jethro. And the first thing she did was she said to Jethro, Oh, I see you've got a braille, you know, Australian accent. I won't mimic it. But she said, I see you've got a braille machine. Can I ask you if you could possibly, um, write out my son's name for him. I would love to give it to him as a gift. It was the first thing she did was to actually give him the dignity Mm. of helping her with something so that that relationship was not founded on a top-down relationship but on an equal relationship. I know, and it's Mm. absolutely amazing. Uh, Sorry, I said there were three things. The one was share your connections. Yes. The second was in education. So so that was the question you asked. So in terms of education, I think it's important that we – Especially as white South Africans, if we if we committed to restitution, this is an area that we need to get involved in. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of uh, trusts that people are setting up. Ask your friends. Find out where there's a fund that you can invest into. Um, if you're employing a domestic worker, look at investing into her um, or, or a um, person doing your gardening mm. Look if you can invest into the children mm. In terms of their education That's that's vital And then the third is access to finance mm. So for, for the poor Access to finance is always a challenge mm. Our banks do not like people who Have no money Have no money <laughs> yeah. And we can use our influence To assist people through Surety or through Um yeah, through assisting them to access finance when oh, they wanted to start right. businesses. Amazing. Those are three key things, I think, for white people in terms of restitution. But yeah. hmm. no. And can you tell us what you told me about uh, Lois? Because you said that she's no longer with you. But what happened as a result of where she's gone? So we, we kind of came to the conclusion there's a family that foot to foot for financial reasons, but also because I think we became convinced that we could fold our own Underwear. Um, <laughs> it occurred to you. <laughs> it occurred to us that this was uh, that it is an incredibly privileged life to live with somebody who's serving you, and I, I think that uh, if we are going to live in solidarity with most South Africans, we've got to move out of the space of privilege and getting people to work for us, and to just treat and make our lives. Or let's, you know, the, so we did things like we got our kids involved with doing household chores and. I'm still, if anybody's got advice, please email me on how to <laughs> get my kids to clean their rooms and make their beds and uh, do those gotta things. you got to pay them a living wage. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That is it. Eh? But, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. We've tried all sorts of tricks, but we're learning that that's, that's what people around the world do. You know, South Africa, it's because we've got cheap, exploitable labor that we we employ people in this. But also for financial reasons and wanting to just live more in solidarity with um, with people in our community, we decided that Lois needed to we needed we needed to um, uh, not have a domestic worker anymore. So so we we spoke to Lois about it and we went through a whole retrenchment process. And I said to Lois, you know. Um, that uh, we would pay her that retrenchment package. But during that process, I also said I would 
commit to helping her find another job. And then I, and that's sharing your connections. You know? yeah. So I contacted, I mean, it's very quick. If you, if you are white, middle class South African, to organize somebody a job is possible, you know? Yeah. And especially somebody as, as amazing as Lois. So, so we, we, I contacted a friend at Been There Coffee Company. And uh, if I could ever plug a company as being the most amazing company on the planet, would be Been There Coffee Where Company. Where is it? Been There Coffee, 44 Stanley, 111 Smith Street. Oh, wow. Um, Cape Town as well. Um, I love coffee. So Their I. coffee is fair trade coffee. So Got it. So their value system, the value chain of Been There is all Ooh, about… Coffee and values. <laughs> their their values is, is they, they source it's, it's single origin African coffees. It's coffees from… And, and they, they work with farmers to ensure sustainability. Mm. Uh, there's they, they, they make sure that farmers get paid a living… Um, a, a, a fair trade prices for the coffee, so there's the value chain mm. all the way down, mm. is is making sure that there's justice in this supply chain of the sure. coffee. So my friend had been there em, employed Lois, and they also read my article that I wrote on the living wage, and they shared it with their directors, and they've decided that everybody in that company gets paid a living wage. Now. Oh my goodness! So I think that. Um, if there ever was a reason to go to a company and drink coffee, yes. that would be the reason. I'm on it. Because they, it's just coffee. I mean, you need just coffee. So um, I think I think the values – I think lots of companies should should begin to just take the plunge and say, we're going we're gonna to change the way we – every single employee in our company is going to get paid a living wage. You, this whole stuff at Fees Must Fall at Vits. Mm. Um, I don't know if you spoke to any of the ground staff or cleaning staff yeah. at Vits. You know, they've, they've now – at first it was 5,000. I think it's more now. Mm. It was 4,500 was their first – I mean, it was significantly more than what yeah. people were earning. Hmm. Suddenly, the I mean, just it's transformed lives. Yeah. And, you know, Vitz likes to say, oh, it's cost X million or whatever. But when you compare it to their overall budget of the company, of how much it's actually uh, – overall budget of the university, it's a very small percentage increase uh, in the overall budget of the university that's been given so that people can have a living wage. It's just insane that, that we've been doing outsourcing and we've justified it mm. because it's cheaper for the university. But when you look at what it is in terms of an overall percentage of just making sure people get paid a, a living wage or get paid – um, an acceptable minimum wage. Do you have any connection to the living wage website that's not opened? Have you seen it? Wh- which one? There's a living wage website. Livingwage.org.za. Mm-hmm. Yeah, living-wage.co.za. Okay, so that is a, a company call, called Code SA mm. that is in Cape Town, mm. and they did a a living wage calculator. Mm. Um, they, they, the way they've calculated it, um, they they worked with the with one of the Vitz um, poverty research institutes mm. um, that that had um, a basket of goods, and they worked with them to work out to work out costs. So it, it is it, it's a, it's a good calculator to yeah, go to. Okay, I, I tried it. Um, yeah, is it, is it in That's any way different good, from good you, from the way that you worked out? Do you have any idea? Um, I'm not familiar 100. percent We actually are starting a, a living wage website, which hopefully will be up in the next six months. But yeah, but mm. we've we've spoken to them about putting that calculator onto oh, that's awesome. onto our onto our website. Having said that, the living wage website has used data that's about three or four years old now. Okay. So we need to be aware that they, I mean, Stats SA. I think the last. 
StatsSA survey was 2011, was it, or 2014? Sure. Yeah. So we, we've still got quite old economic okay. data. It needs to be updated, and, and websites like that need to be updated. So, mm. and, and also, they don't look at individual families in the yeah. website. They look at things like… Um, Statistically, you would need this much for transport. Right, right. Yeah. So it is helpful to sit down and have a conversation with somebody and to yeah. say, let's look at your budget and, and to review that over a couple of months. Mm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And with that, I mean, wow. Wow. <laughs> I have I've literally very little left to say. I mean. Yeah, you, you can go into the thought of the day. I don't even know. <laughs> I th- it might just be like overstimulus, but no, I think actually the thought of the day. Um, or it might without, be think about everything that Nigel just said. Without, yeah, exactly. No, without really going into it, because I think we have in so many ways, or maybe not. But injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Um, and I think it is just absolutely poignant given where our conversation started, which was just, I think, a general overview of our moral fabric from an economic and a social point of view, um, and then to honing in on, on the living wage of domestic workers in, in particular. Um, but it certainly isn't just about domestic workers. It's about our principles as a, as a society. And, you know, um, like you pointed out, the situation that mine workers are in, and the situation that domestic workers are in is very much related. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's multiple links we can point to. But yeah. it's just that greater consciousness, I guess, that you realize when you as an individual decided to yeah. do something. It's that greater consciousness that what we do in a silo actually has a, a ripple Effect. Wow. Yeah, thanks for connecting the dots. Even, I mean, for myself, and I think every time I talk to you, you ask me something I've never thought about. So it's, it's really good to, you know, continue to have these sorts of discussions. I mean, and I think you're quite an advocate for discussing yeah. engagements, dialogue, whether mm-hmm. hard or not. And so, yeah, we really, really appreciate you coming. What a treat. Well, yeah. Well, thank you both <laughs> for the show. And, uh, I think it's very inspiring to be part, to, to just have, have, uh, been part, been on a show that is committed to these issues, you know, a show, div- I mean, a show for domestic workers and a show <laughs> around domestic workers and, and the rights and justice. I mean, um, it's very inspiring. I think the key for me with transforming South Africa is that, um, every single one of us is on a journey and let's try to be more authentic mm. in our journey and let's try to just carry on doing a little bit more each day until we see the whole universe bending towards justice. You know? Thank oh, wow. you so much, Nigel. <laughs> and thank you guys for listening to yeah. the Made Editions on cliffcentral.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Made Project. I was going to say dot com. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just at Made Project. That's M-A-I-D-E Project, as well as the Made Sessions on Facebook. Thanks again so much, Nigel. I think you rounded up the show very well. <laughs> Have a good evening, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Cliff Central. The Revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliff Central. Cliff Central. Cliff Central.